you'd like to contact the show, send us an email at liveonfourlegspodcast at gmail.com or get involved in the conversation on social media. Join the Pearl Jam Podcast community group on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Live on Four Legs Pod. The way things are going now, the next step in evolution is probably going to be a, uh, an electrical outlet up our ass. <laughs> a uh, Microsoft number given to us at birth. A uh, chip planted in our ear. But uh, above all those previously mentioned, I would rather have wings any day. And away we go. You're listening to Live on Four Legs, the live Pearl Jam podcast experience featuring... Mr. Stone Gossett! Everybody now, welcome to Live on Four Legs, a definitive live Pearl Jam podcast, and we are creeping ever so quickly to that starting line that will be happening in exactly eight days from now, August 31st, in St. Paul, Minnesota, will be the first Pearl Jam show of 2023. And we at the podcast are obviously very, very excited over this. And we will be talking about that and the entire tour that is coming up because you just can't get enough of it right now. There's no lack of conversation to be had. But also, we are in the midst of a wonderful little series that we're doing, spotlighting the 25th anniversary of the 1998 tour, the Yield Tour, my favorite album and a damn good tour to boot. And today, we are actually going to fill... I want to say it's like the three bridges of Pittsburgh because this year we've done a a bunch of Pittsburgh shows and this is going to be the third and final. So we did 2003, we did 2000, and now we're here doing 1998, like kind of all those in a row, the, the trilogy of Pittsburgh, if you want to say that. So we're going to dig into that and we're going to start that right now. Randy Sobel over here, John Farrar over there. Hello, hello. So where do you want to begin here? Well, I was going to try to work the word yens into Oh, please don't. I don't. I don't even know what part of speech that is, so I'm going to pass. But, um, it's a nap. Yeah, what, sure. But yeah, this is another one, too, that like we're doing a show that just happened a few days after the show we covered last week, which we've gotten to do a couple of times, too. We did the Mansfield shows, which are obviously the two back-to-back, and then the one a week later, 
Before that, we did the Dallas and Bonner Springs in 2003, which happened just a few days ago. So we've kind of done this thing. We're like getting to follow chronologically a little bit. So the show we're covering today just happened a couple of days after the show we covered last week, which is super cool. That's not happens all the time. Oh, yeah, I agree with that. And that's actually kind of been a thought for the future that it's really tough to kind of pin down when and and what you're going to do. But I've always kind of wanted to do like consecutive weeks of just doing shows in a row like we would take and honestly for a lot of this august tour in 1998 i think we've kind of covered a good chunk of it so we'd probably take the june leg of the yield tour so to say and we would cover from one night to the next to the next night and do that all in a month to kind of see just sort of the trends and where the trajectory is. And I I really like that aspect too, because it almost kind of takes you on tour with them and gets you a glimpse into their minds that, okay, maybe they played this song the night before, but that song didn't translate well into that set. But maybe there's one song where you can see it's gaining a lot of momentum and is all three nights, four nights. There's a lot of discussion to be had on that. And I think that some of what happened in Barry could come back up in this episode too. Maybe not in the facet that you're thinking, but I I have a couple of points on that. But I think we should talk a little bit about the tour that we're going to in just a matter of weeks here because it is right in our peripheral vision now. And we kind of mentioned this last week. I think one of, and I'm currently writing a blog for liveonfourlegs.com right now, answering questions and making predictions. Everybody kind of does it. It's the sports analysis before the baseball season begins kind of article like, oh, what are your predictions and all that. So one of the things that I really feel kind of confident on is that with four out of the five locations that they're going to are two night events. And usually when Pearl Jam does two night events, they are going to change it up as much as humanly possible. That's just kind of the history there. And with kind of mentioning last week about what Metallica has done, and they've marketed this, they've marketed that two nights in the same city are going to be completely different sets. That's something that Pearl Jam would never do because they never want anybody to go into a show kind of knowing what's up. That's just not their style. But I really think that we could be seeing very, very different shows in the back-to-backs with not a lot of repeats. I think you'll get some obvious repeats, like a live Evenflow and a couple of those, maybe Porch. But I don't foresee these shows having a similar identity. Yeah, I didn't go back and look to see all the ones last year. I know there was Hyde Park and maybe one or two other ones. Yeah, L.A. and Oakland. And Oakland, you can kind of leave out because that was kind of reacting to COVID anyway. Sure. But, yeah, Hyde Park is the one to go back to because that one was one where they did mix it up a lot. I don't know if there might have been just one song that was repeated. It was Alive and Porch. Okay. Yeah, so just the two. So. That's something to go off to. I think you're onto something. I don't think you'll, you know, you might get a corduroy or a small town thrown in there too. But yeah, I think for the most part, they're going to be looking to mix it up. I think you can look back to Hyde Park and people love those two shows. Very, very cool. I think that was one that a lot of people were hoping was going to get like a video release on the website or something because they had the screens behind them and everything. 
I remember when that happened, people, oh, the two set lists complemented each other very well. Very cool things on both nights. You know, it didn't seem super imbalanced as to where you know, usually we talk about, oh, night two is the one to go to. You know, that's when they'll break out something special. You know, I think we're past the point of the album shows, you know, where you would think like back 2016, 2014, you would be like, oh, night two, you're going to get something crazy. You might do an album. But I think we're past that. But I think they've still got stuff up their sleeve. I think we're going to get a couple of surprises. Yeah, and for a lot of people asking, and again, I address this in the blog, whether it's out right now as we speak or it'll be out in the next 24 hours or so, it'll be there. But a lot of people kind of want to know, are we in the same set list structure of 22 to 24 songs a night, only one encore? And as we addressed last week, the five song open, will that be back? And I think the structure stays exactly what it was from last year. I don't see there being a need to change any of that because it did work really well. Yeah, everybody loves to have more. And Pearl Jam has spoiled us by giving us more and more and more as the years kind of went forward. But obviously now it's kind of the de-evolution, if you want to say. It's kind of reverting a little bit as they get older, but the whole point is that you want them to play for as long as humanly possible and if this is something that is going to get them there then yeah like play only 23 songs a night play only nine shows a year so we have more of that in 10 years where maybe they're not at the level that they are right now but at least we still get to see them at least they still get to be doing their thing i'll say this i don't think you get the same structure every night i'd like to see them just do the gentle intro, the sit-down intro, just on the night two shows. Like, give it a break. Because I'm looking at this. They've got three dates in between St. Paul and Chicago, day off in between in St. Paul, day off in between in Chicago, two off days before they go to Noblesville, two more days off before going to Fort Worth. And then the only two that are back-to-back are Austin, which is the end, which you might see something there. But the end of the tour, you can push it. I think I'd like to see them mix it up. Maybe like I talked about last week, do it in the middle of the set, mix it up a little bit. Maybe the first night in St. Paul, they don't do it at all. I seem to think because of the number of shows here, I think that we will be back to the normal structure when it comes to that, like releasing the corduroy, easy stuff. I don't think we're going to get an extended if it's extended at all. I think maybe two kind of slower songs to open with, but not anywhere close to five. I see this because while the band really liked it, I feel like, and they had a lot of opportunities to kind of get creative with that. I think they're a band that just wants to get right in and go. They want to get to Animal. They want to get to Hell Hell. They want to get to Corduroy. They want the show to begin. And I feel like that's why we had that kick down the chairs type song last year, because they were too anxious to get out there and do their thing. Like they wanted to explode. So I really feel like it might come to a close, but we'll see. Before we get into more Pittsburgh stuff, there is one thing I want to address, and that is a, I wouldn't say a mistake, but kind of a clarification from the Chicago show. And I'm really mad at myself because I knew this story. I knew what happened here. So remember when Jeff did the happy birthday and comeback followed it, so we weren't sure, like, oh, is he wishing somebody happy birthday that's no longer with us? And 
that actually happens to be the case because Mike Richter, who was mentioned and who had the birthday shout out, yeah, actually yeah. had passed away before that show, I think got into an accident of some sort. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I'm pissed at myself for not remembering that, because the poster for that show is him in like a bulls Jersey and he's in a dunking pose and where it says Pearl jam, the letters M I think it's M J and R are all kind of blacked out. I believe those are his initials. So yeah, I remember that story, but I can't believe I didn't put two and two together, but I wanted to clarify that because I think that is a really cool facet that unfortunately we didn't get to touch up on. Yeah, I'm looking at the poster now, like R, J, and M are darker than the rest of them. It might even be a picture of him, because like it's... I think it is. It doesn't say like Chicago or Bulls on the front, it says something else. Yeah, Um, it's just the color of the Bulls. Yeah. So, clearing that up, glad we got that out there, especially for you guys that are going to Chicago and want to listen to that episode. (laughs) At least you'll have post-knowledge of what happens there. But I think we can get into a little bit more of Pittsburgh right now. And as we mentioned, they are just mowing down the line here on the Yield Tour. They were in Barrie, Toronto, and I believe they were in Montreal either before or after Toronto. I can't quite remember what the in-between show between right Barrie. It was right before. And what Auburn, was in between? Auburn Hills. Auburn Hills. OK, that makes a whole lot of sense because that's right there. So what's interesting here, thinking about Pittsburgh, and Ed will mention this at the show, and when you go back and you kind of study and take a look at what the shows were like, it is very weird that from 1992 to 1998 that they didn't play one show in Pennsylvania after the Lollapalooza shows. Yeah, that's surprising. Especially, you know, 94 and 96 specifically. Yeah, I'm thinking about 94. They were there. They were right in that general area. Easily could have done Philadelphia. Yeah, went straight from Fairfax to Boston to New York. And in 96. They just kind of skipped from New York to Buffalo, it seems, right? From the south straight up to Hartford and Buffalo. Yeah. And not even like a Camden thrown in there either. That you'd be right. Okay, well, at least that's, you know, something. My my guess is that the PA area in either Pittsburgh or Philadelphia didn't have any non-Ticketmaster spots to go to, or those spots had already been accounted for. That's my guess on that. Yeah, probably. But it's just very weird that, like, PA is one of the biggest states. Yeah, they, and they has more like, than made up for it since. Oh, oh, trust me, yes. <laughs> it's just very odd when you look at the history of Philadelphia and I guess it's not including Camden, but in just Philadelphia proper, it went from 1992 to 2003 before they had a show at the spectrum. It feels almost impossible to me, but that's the history of it. That's how it all kind of went down. We're going to get into talking about the sound check in just a second, but I think the big Kind of talking point for this show is the live debut of No Way, which at first it says to No Way, No Way. It didn't seem like they were very excited to do it. They kind of said, all right, well, 
if we ever got to do it, then let's just kind of rip the Band-Aid off, it feels like. But it is the one Yield song, and I shouldn't even say one, because Push Me, Pull Me is right there, too. It just never got off the ground. And I think we got a little bit of a hint of that in PJ20, where Stone kind of had a little bit of a refusal to play it, even though Ed mentioned it. And I guess we'll get into it a little bit with Javier later, but it's just very strange that it didn't have more of a presence. Yeah, it's a song that probably just not the right time for it, because like we've seen songs similar to that. You know, the one I think of is Let the Records Play, which has got that same kind of stompy kind of sound to it. And that one had a pretty good run in 2013 and 2014, even up to 2016. But yeah, it's just one of those outlier songs that, like I said, they never got in a groove with and it never really clicked live, I think. And I think it's been, what, now almost 10 years since they played it since Milwaukee. That was probably the last time, right? It's weird to say that's almost 10 years. Yeah. 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 That's the last time. You know what's strange, though? When you think about No Way's placement on the record, and I'm very traditional when it comes to this, I think that your number three song should be your star of the record, your best song, your most energetic song, your first single. I feel like that is destined to be in the number three spot, unless there's like a different concept that you're going for. And when you think about the first four records, that was sort of the case. You had a live and then you had Daughter, like, you're right there with those. And then Not For You, I think that they wanted to highlight Not For You the most, it seemed. And then for No Code, it's Who You Are, but that was their first single anyway. Right. So it makes sense there. And then No Way, you kind of almost save your best for the next one instead. Because you got given a fly at number four. But... Knowing the flow and everything of that album, like, do you think that that song kind of makes sense there? I don't know. It has the feel of more like a second half deep cut, right? Than an early album. Like, whenever I think of this, it's always the three spot and the eight spot that they always seem to highlight with like a better, for yeah. lack of a better term. No way is the outlier on that for sure. It would have made a lot more sense for Given a Fly to be there at number three. Well, they would follow up on the next record with evacuation there. So I guess there's kind of a little dead space in between. But yeah, just very strange from that standpoint. And I guess they agreed with that. However, the album flow went. Number three didn't seem to be the one that they wanted to highlight the most. It was actually probably the exact opposite. I think we can kind of dig into a little bit of this show, but first, there is a sound check on hand. We have three songs that they played in the sound check that we listened to. One of those is Red Mosquito, another one of those is Last Kiss, which I find interesting, and then Soldier of Love, which is obviously the split from those two. And it's very interesting because apparently going into the show, the weather was really, really lousy. And you can hear it when it comes to Red Mosquito and then later in Soldier of Love. You can hear that rain coming down hard on that recording.
cleared up. It was still gray. There's going to be a moment where Ed changes a lyric to reflect the gray clouds that are out. But it definitely seemed kind of daunting before getting into the festivities. Yeah, yeah. There's a review on Five Horizons that's really good, too. The guy talks about that a little bit. And yeah, it's too bad that we didn't get the whole thing. I mean, I'm don't get me wrong. All thanks to our taper friend here who braved the elements to get this. But evidently they started off with a really long kind of spacey jam and then to whipping. But yeah, Red Mosquito sounds it's very slow, which is for the sound check. You're just trying to obviously this is for Cameron's benefit for the most part. They're trying to get him familiar with everything and use this as kind of an extra time for him to work on stuff. But I thought it was really interesting to get Red Mosquito. And like you said, the, the two covers which you look back on now and you're like, oh, well, that makes perfect sense for the time. But they hadn't really started doing those. I think Last Kiss had only been played once and Soldier Love had only been played once. Yeah. So after this, they would kind of go on a little bit of a roll. But yeah, not quite yet at this time. So maybe they were working those out. And we know, you know, everything's recording of Last Kiss, the single came from a sound check. So it makes a lot of sense, too, that they, they would have been working on that one a lot. Yeah, Last Kiss is really interesting because they don't debut it live until four nights later in Camden, which actually makes a whole lot of sense because the Philadelphia area, those radio stations are really what put this song on the map and put it at the forefront of people's attention. So it does make a whole lot of sense that they, I wouldn't say debut debut it there, but like tour debut it's there. And Soldier of Love, I believe, was... East Lansing that they debuted that at and I want to say that's either the 17th or 18th so that's really really close there but before we kind of trail off into that I got to mention on Red Mosquito you hear a harmonica being brought out which I don't think had been used a whole lot not even in regular Pearl Jam I went to Mosquito go look to make sure have it wasn't it. Danny Lynch to make sure he wasn't, he wasn't there at this part but well thanks for stealing my line <laughs> Yeah, the harmonic is interesting. He's working out what the melody is going to be and how it's going to fit in. But you can hear, too, at the end, I think you hear Cameron working on different things and, and trying different rhythms and playing around with them a little bit. Yeah, it's an interesting version. The two covers obviously are what they are, but Red Mosquito is kind of the one that you could tell when they were trying something new on it, which that's what Soundcheck's for. Well, from Soundcheck, we go, and we're going in order here, of course, but we're kind of taking baby steps to the set because we got Soundcheck, and now we got Preset. The artist that they were opening up for in 1998 is a who's who. Obviously, we talked about Cheap Trick last week. Iggy Pop is here. Like, Iggy freaking Pop is opening up for them, and that's just freaking incredible. And it feels like, of course, Ed's whole thing want to make sure that people are in for the opening band, get to listen to them and respect what they're doing. And I wonder if he kind of noticed, and I think one of those shows, maybe it was Noblesville, that the crowd didn't seem really into Iggy at all at that point. He's at least 30 years into the music business and kind of felt like maybe a little old hat. And like people kind of thought, man, well, we know he's legendary, but mm, not kind of what we're going for in 1998 and i wonder if that kind of invigorates ed to play a preset to make sure that people are in their seats to go and see him 
Yeah, this was before the Stooges had reunited. I think that came a few years later, like in the early 2000s, when they kind of started to get their due a little bit and people started to focus on them again. And yeah, I don't remember. Like 2006, Pop. I think. Yeah. I don't remember Iggy Pop being a big, like, I don't think he was at the forefront of, of anything really in 1998. And again, same with Cheap Trick. So, but yeah, I mean, obviously he's a legend and like, the guy puts on an incredible show no matter where and who he's playing with. So they're going to have to up their game to play with Iggy Pop. You know, I always go back lead listening to those Henry Rollins spoken word things talking about, you know, Rollins band playing with Iggy Pop and him he has great stories about just watching him on stage and just being blown away. The guy's like 40, 50, 60 years old and still brings it like he's 19 every single night. Hey, look. For anybody that's there that night, they might get a double dose of Iggy Pop because Ed comes out on the stage and says, good evening, I'm Iggy Pop. And that will lead to a preset featuring Throw Your Arms Around Me, one of my personal favorite covers, if not my favorite cover. And I thought that this was excellent. I loved how Ed's voice was soaring on this. The crowd was really, really into it. Ed seemed to be in a really good mood and he's kind of embellishing some of those lyrics. This is the moment where he kind of changes the lyric to gray summer skies instead of the blue summer skies there. So he's taking everything in and kind of setting the landscape of what the show would be. I agree with your opinion as well. This is my favorite cover that they do now. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Every time I hear this, I like it a lot more and more. Yeah, throw your arms around me. It's fantastic. Like you said, it's perfect for his voice. He gets to just, like I said, soar and just sit right on it. And I love the, you know, it changes to 155 places, which always gets a nice response from the crowd. And that was kind of his go-to around this time. But yeah, it's absolutely great. I love this cover. That's the preset. Now let's get into the main set and the way we're going to start this night. A lot of very historic shows in Pearl Jam history have started this way. And the way that they kind of start, it makes you feel like you're there and the passion pours out. And it's a spiritual type version of release here.
I thought this was excellent. It's definitely fitting in that category of being the cathartic versions of release, the ebbs and flows where everybody's kind of on the edge of their seat and kind of waiting for that big moment to erupt. I thought were perfect here. Ed forgot some important lines, but it didn't even feel like that was a misstep. He just went right back into it, found his place, and then took off again. This is a wonderful version of release. I agree. There was a book that I had when I was a teenager that Rolling Stone had put out in the late 90s called alt rock and it's a dumb title. But it's a really good book. It's like kind of an anthology of underground music. It's different writers and things doing little articles and little pieces. And there's some rankings in there of stuff. But at the very end, someone, I can't remember, I should pull it back out and see. But someone points out, like, these are the four things that music needs to be legendary. And the fourth one, I don't really remember the other three. But the fourth one is, it needs to be on the edge of falling apart at any time. Like, delicate is not really the right word, but, like, you get right up to that point where, like, this could all fall apart, but you're getting something magical in the moment. And release, I think, gets that. I think there's a part here in the second verse where everything really drops out. You just get some harmonics on the guitar, and it gets very, very quiet. Ed, his voice kind of, like, drops off a little bit. He goes to a little bit of a speaking voice, and you're like, oh, this is one of those moments where this could just fall apart right now. But then they take that and just keep building up and keep building up and keep building up. And when it gets to the end, it just explodes. And yeah, this is a fantastic version of release. Yeah, that's a great way to put that. And there's a lot of songs like that that you can say that in Pearl Jam history. And maybe it's just kind of like instead of breaking down, but it could also be like the Bonner Springs version where it's the unknown factor that something can happen and be spontaneous within a show and that changes the course of what the song is, too. I, I feel like that might fit into that category as well. I don't know if it was part of the other three that were there that you mentioned, but it feels like it's right up there. All right, let's kick your ass right here. Brain of J, Last Exit, Corduroy. Brain of J, to me, is the highlight of this section. It's shot out of a cannon. And coming out of, once again, a very spiritual type version of release where Ed's voice soars into the distance, it's time for Ed to completely lose his mind. He is fired up to start this, intense, and you can just feel that manic energy coming from him every line he goes through in this. And it's not just Brain of Jay, but it really kind of reflects a lot of this show, too. It will go down to the end of the main set. It'll go into a little bit of the encore as well. Like, this is Ed's mood for the night, and he keeps it very, very consistent. Yeah, he sounds absolutely feral on this. I don't know if it was coming out doing kind of a more upbeat, more acoustic preset throwing around me than release is a different thing but yeah as soon as brandon j starts you know, oh man like there's that voice there's the scream but i think for me it's about stone like this brandon j solo by stone is one of the best i've ever heard and i think that's where we're gonna get into javier right here i think he wants to talk about stone because stone is a wonderful thing to be talking about so our first gear guru segment of the day here he is it's javier
Hey Randy, hey John, hey everyone on the podcast. We're covering 1998 Pittsburgh for this week, and we have one week left till we see friendly faces again, and I am very excited to see good old friends on tour this time celebrating Randy's birthday in Chicago. Hint, hint, again, if you haven't noticed the message. <laughs> Anyways, Brain of J. So 1998 was a weird year. They made a lot of changes on their bike line. Mike tried three different setups. Jeff tried two different setups. And Ed tried two different setups too. The only consistent one for this tour, it was Stone. Stone at that point was running two matchless DC30 combos. He didn't change any of that. What's the difference about these amps related with everything else that they have been using around that year or posterior eras is the fact that EL84 amps, that's the kind of tube that they use, they're very chimey, is kind of sound like a box amp in a sort of way. It's going to give you very nice cleans, but also it's going to push the amp towards a very tighter, more compressed sound. And actually the solo that you hear in Brain of J is a very good example of that. During this time, he was using a pedal called Ivanis Sonic Distortion, and that was the main weapon of choice to use for solos or when you want to go and you want to jump in front of the mix. So that combo plus those two matchless, if you hear the recording, it's a very tight, extremely well-defined solo where like the player can articulate the nose, licks, arpeggios, etc. So... It is a very unique feature because it's an amp that is not very common or it's an amp that we have not seen in rotation for the later tours. And it's going to add a little bit of a difference to the tonal variety that we know in Stone for, right? We, we know him because he's always like kind of like sharp edge, Neil Young kind of tone. But for this tour, he was going for something a little bit more compressed and something a little bit more defined when it comes to like the articulation of the solo. So, yeah. Pretty good geek detail for this week, and we're going to kick it off that way. All right. Thank you so much, Javier. We'll see you back probably not until alive, but we'll see. We'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. The only other thing I got on Brandon J is that you can audibly hear the audience sing the name they gave me line, and I thought that that was really cool, especially for it being so close to when the album came out usually it kind of like skips a year almost where everybody kind of sings and gets into the song it would be like the binaural tour with something like giving a fly or something like that but i really liked how into the crowd was with this and anytime you have a full-fledged crowd singing brana J, that's thumbs up from me track one so everybody when they press play that's what they heard yeah, mm-hmm. uh, it was one of those, and hoping, fingers are crossed, for Fort Worth. Remember the stories, that's why I got tickets there. <laughs> Momentum is flowing perfectly into Last Exit, which is once again very fierce, especially the ending on this, and Cameron has that pop in his drive that gives it such a big final push. And once again, Ed going out on some fury there too. Corduroy, I think that's interesting to talk about on its own, How about that slow burn intro there? It kind of reminded me almost of like the recorded version where it sort of creeps in, it fades in a little bit before you start strumming and getting into the exciting part. I thought that that was a really cool way to do it. And then once it breaks into that, again, it's Ed with the intensity, all backed up with Mike and a face melting solo when you get to the end. I really enjoyed this section to start things. 
Yeah, I love when a corduroy intro is very slow and very deliberate because it just builds that tension and that anticipation of when it kicks in and it's just that much more explosive and that much better. But yeah, I agree. The solo is not just face melting, but I think it's really unique and really cool. He's doing some different things. It felt like this was something we hadn't really heard that you don't get later on. Like the corduroy solo has kind of a standard thing and this deviates from that. I think he goes off and he's trying some different things there. From there, the ending of it is great. Yeah, that's the best part for me. All right, we got I Got Shit into Faithful right here. And as we talked about the intensity on Ed, it's going to be a constant theme, but I feel like it really shined on I Got Shit. There are a couple moments here he furiously is blurting out the I got memories, I got shit line. second week in a row where we get the don't know whether the fuck I'll ever get a mask line very matter-of-factly and to the point and I like that this version and what I always think about like more current versions of this is that it becomes a little more poppy it kind of has more of like a sing-song vibe to it and that's just not the original vibe to the song that makes it the song. So this has a little bit of a very pounding aspect to it, a very plodding kind of pace that sort of develops and just grit. I think that's the best thing when it comes to I Got Shit is just how it can feel sludgy and gritty. Yeah, I think the later versions, it gets a little more, like I said, a little more uplifting and a little more positive. But I think that originally it was a little darker and a little more sinister. And yeah, you get that here for sure. But you do two songs in a row here where he's adding fucking, like, potty mouth head on this show. Like, just <laughs> going off the deep end, going blue. Well, I mean, we should just kind of do a swear count here from now on. Put, like, put, swear jar. Put a dollar in the jar, yeah. Yeah, I think we'll be making a lot of money if we end up doing that, so. (laughs) Well, Faithful, what do you got on Faithful here? I thought it was really exciting. The review said that the band was really bouncing around a lot and had fun during it. Yeah, super cool. And like another Yield song, which they're going to get into. Obviously, the band's excited to play the most recent songs. But I think, too, on the Five Horizons review, it talks about him doing the sign language MYTH, which I really like as well, the visual there. Because, again, we don't have, I don't think, any video from the show. So nope. we have to rely on the people who are there. And we thank them for it because that is a very important aspect of getting this whole thing together. Now, the next section is a two-punch combo that would have the MTV concert goer melt into their chair because it's even flow into Jeremy. This is literally the dream for the casual fan right here. And I think they got introduced to two very good versions of songs. I thought that Evenflow had a very flashy mic presence here. A lot of flashy hammer-ons. I thought it was very like Stevie Ray Vaughan, very bluesy style. And I don't know if you noticed this, at kind of the tail end going into the last chorus, Ed sounds like he's singing something into the mic before that. And it's just not discernible at all. 
And in this show, we'll hear a couple of moments where it becomes a little bit more discernible when he's doing something improvised, but it did feel like he had a little bit on the back end there. Yeah, to me, this solo sounded a lot funkier, like almost like a Chili Peppers kind of thing. But he was pulling out all the bag of tricks on this one. Now, this is another fuck moment. I don't know if you were kind of alluding to it when you mentioned I got shit, but and now our cup is getting filled with with dollar bills here because we've obviously used it a lot. But you know what? We're not a parental guidance podcast, I suppose. Yeah. I don't yeah. I don't know what the fuck do you call it. But the crowd ate up Jeremy. It has a really big reaction and then the crowd all in unison. this it has a pretty big ending to it but it was cut a little short after the ah yeah 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 like that part usually kind of leads into like a little bit more like a uh and that turns into the outro but right after that ah, yeah, 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 like jeff rolls back into the bass outro and finishes the song so like a little tail end yeah. of the ending got cut out yeah, Jeremy is so weird structurally, all the different ways. There's probably been like 25 different versions of Jeremy, how they At least. structured it and like moved things around and taken things off and added things. Yeah, it's so weird like that they always are kind of fucking with it and never seem satisfied with how it goes. But I'm going to go back to, there's a review on Five Horizons. I look like this guy, I give him a shout out, John Mastrangelo, who was there, wrote a review. I feel um, like I've seen that name around before. Could be. Could be. Maybe he's a listener. Yeah. Says on this one, it looked like Ed's face was going to explode. So contorted with anger. So he was kind of channeling that 1992 Jeremy on this one. Ed's going to address the crowd for the first time. Thank you, Pittsburgh. All these years, we've never been able to get a headlining gig here in Pennsylvania. We're all fully aware. And I guess it was 1993 that we were last in this venue. I got to check again. It's 1992 Starlink Amphitheater for Lollapalooza. We're going to try and make up for all the years that we played. And he kind of under his breath says, oh, every song. And it was hard to catch that, but Five Horizons made a note of it. I don't know if I would have heard that without Five Horizons. So wherever you are, whoever you are, just get in a good situation going around yourself and enjoy the evening. And that will lead you into a nice driving combo here that I think... You'll see both of these in Indianapolis, but maybe not back-to-back like this. They've only done these two four times, interestingly enough, back-to-back. It's MFC into Rear Mirror, of course. And we're starting with the Pittsburgh line changes and changing an MFC to There's a Lot to be Said for Pittsburgh. And just a very atmospheric-sounding MFC and kind of makes you feel like you're driving on that desert road that that nowhere to go yield sign is and it just kind of gives you that visual i've always thought that way since around this time period where i was consistently listening to the record and it just has a nice vibe to it but river mirror is really the story here mfc2 real quick he evidently had used up all his fucks because he lays off on the fuck it part of does doesn't do that so evidently he he was out of them this is not a storyline that I was prepared to talk about today. So 
just know that if there are more moments of this, I might not be handy. I'm going to have to rely on you for counting all this stuff. We'll see what happens. But I don't feel like there were any fuck-ups on Rear Mirror in this. However, there is something that's very, very cool. The part of the song before the bridge, again, more of that intensity that you really love from this. And then they take it down real low during the bridge. Very kind of simplistic and going back to using the word spiritual, spiritual sounding in a way. But it's going to lead way into Ed doing some improv lyrics here. And it's fantastic. To hear something like this on Rear Vermeer. And we've seen in the last decade or so the occasional I will forgive, I won't forget thing. But this and the lyrics here kind of feel like maybe he's tapping into some of what the song is about. Just kind of pleading to be let go. Did you get that vibe from that? Yeah, the ones I could make out, he says, I'm just trying to live. I hear music in my head. There's definitely more. But yeah, I love this. This isn't something normally we talk about on Black, and I think I've gushed the last few weeks. Uh, those are some of my favorite moments and some of my favorite versions of Black when he'll just go off and do a little improv. But I don't want to fuck up your segue, but there was a little bit of a messed up lyric to start review here. He did fuck up a little bit. I think he went to the second verse instead of the first verse, right? Yeah, that sounded right. Yeah. But hey, no harm, no foul. They can't. Right. That I didn't mention it, I guess it doesn't matter, so. But, great. And this is a mid-set rearview mirror here. It's very odd to see this, but I love it just the same. It's a perfect build-up into the finish of the song. They absolutely wreak havoc on it, and I think it is one of the memorable highlights from the show. Wishlist into daughter, I think he kind of needed to come down just a little bit after River Mirror in its intensity, and Wishlist is a good way to do it. Very heartfelt and bouncy version of this. And the ending, Ebo, sounded really good before popping into that little reprise where Ed improvises the lyrics, I wish I lived in your hometown. And trust me, there's a lot of hometown pandering to come very, very soon. A lot more. So, daughter, Ed, again, for the second episode in a row, is doing... Some of that interesting vocal noises on the daughter tag yet again. 
almost like he's sort of spiraling into a void. Yeah, you're, I mean, you're burying the lead on daughter. Yeah, the vocal things are cool, but it's the tag that's going to bring well, the house down. This is, you know, a very linear podcast here. Like, we got to mention things as they come. And obviously, when we play the music here, you'll hear what's here and what's happening. So, yes, the voice is spiraling into the void. But once that whole thing is over with, we get an outshine tag on this. And again, the pandering comes up. without shine because i think this might be the only legitimate tag of this song that there is i think any other time that they brought it to the table was just kind of almost like an in-between song little thing that ed just sort of said and then segued into once or something like that looks like the only other time it was at the end of i got a feeling in 1991 yeah i can't remember that one But, in Ann Arbor. Yeah, I know we've done that show before, but yeah. I, I bet that that was probably just a little snippet as well. When he starts the lyrics, he's almost kind of speaking, and I'm like, is it bad that I did not recognize this was Outshine until he got to the Looking California part? But yeah, the first time, according to Live Footsteps here, 373 shows in between Outshine tags. That is a stat that I was not aware of before today. Yeah, 1991 is when that Bad Motor Finger record came out, and at this point, Soundgarden is obviously no more, considering who the drummer of Pearl Jam is, and it must have just came to Ed's mind, and maybe they talked about it with Matt before the show, who knows? But that's not the only tag. We have another OTOTO tag here, getting into Iggy Pop's I Wanna Live to finish out the tag. Well, I want to go to our buddy John from the Five Horizons Review, who says it looks like Ed didn't want to end the song, but everyone else just kind of stopped playing. It felt like I went back and listened to it. You can maybe tell, but it's so hard without a video. But evidently, according to him, that he wanted to keep going, but the band was like, oh, we're done. Well, here's another big highlight of this show to me. And last week it got a lot of praise and and play on this podcast because it was the music video debut. But now I think it's officially in rotation for all of you that were watching MCB in 1998. And I got my hand raised and evolution is full throttle. Again, the intensity that came right from the jump with brain of J is very apparent here. And it feels like Ed's head is going to explode in this version. And just like Brandon J as well, Stone is excellent here. He missteps the first solo a very little bit, but that kind of goes back to 
just on the verge of breaking apart, but that really wasn't going in that direction at all. It was just like one note of a midstep. But this is excellent from Stone's side, too. Just a really good rush of energy after the little bit of darkness that happens on the daughter tag. Yeah, it's, it's a great version. I think it had debuted the 24th, because 120 minutes aired Sunday nights, I think, midnight. So technically it would be Monday the 24th. So the video would just premiered on MTV 48 hours before this. So everyone probably got a chance to see it. So this was one I'm sure that people were excited to see. Absolutely, yeah, and you know, along with Brandon J and Give Me the Fly, these are the songs that really get to shine off the yield record right away. So, yeah, no lack of, you know, no resting moment for Ed there. It is all full go on this one. But Ed's going to talk after this, as we got three more songs in the main set. He says, the way things are going right now, the next step of evolution is going to be an electrical outlet up our asses. A Microsoft number given to us at birth, and I immediately thought about the scene in the music video where the babies are getting the what's barcodes. called yeah. the barcode stamped on their head. I wonder if that was kind of a thought that tied into that. Probably, yeah. Yeah, a chimp planted in our ears, and above all those previously mentioned, I'd rather have wings any day, and that takes you into giving a fly. Package love, a that, bit. love that segue. Yeah, very mm, well done. Very good. Into small town. A very soaring version of Given a Fly. They kept this very opened up and kind of let it evolve and give the slow burn kind of blossom moment to this. It feels triumphant, almost liberating in a way that the song is supposed to make you feel. And it did its job. No filthy fills or anything like that in this version, but just letting this fly is exactly what happens. Yeah, I mean, a fantastic version of Given a Fly too. And again, with Corduroy, when you get these 1998 versions, you're getting it at kind of the album pace, which again, adds to that tension and makes that build and that release at the end even that much better and that much more special. And yeah, just you really get the sense that you're flying me to be in the crowd for this just super special and I love the end of this main set, too, where you look at it, like, obviously, rearview mirror being in the middle is kind of the delineator. Like, that's a big moment. And then you kind of bring it down with Wishlist and Daughter. Evolution builds up again. And then Given to Fly Off of Duty Evolution is very, very well done. And then into Small Town, which just gives Small Town a super anthemic feel to it coming off of those. I think it's well-crafted here at the end of the main set. Small Town definitely is a wonderful setup for a live here. Yeah, just yeah. the way that, again, you're taking it down, just like you said, but also the entire crowd is singing along to this without any help from Ed saying, all right, guys, it's your turn, without any time where he points the mic over to them and they get the sole moment. They're just singing to be happy to be singing. And that makes this version kind of special and more special than some of the other ones where he kind of has to do that and feels like he has to get the crowd involved. The crowd just knows. And that kind of gets to build a little bit of the drama and get into a live. And it's like the endorphins kick in after that. And once those endorphins kick in, you hear the opening riff to a live, then you're just straight up going to heaven there. And these are two very fan-friendly songs that everybody's going to know and you're going to just radiate that energy throughout that amphitheater there and you have a very very fun version of alive as well 
Yeah, um, small town. I want to go back to our buddy John from the Five Horizons review. He says that Ed had this great look on his face when, when he sang the hello part of the song. So you're starting to get that where he's starting to notice that and feel that energy coming back from the crowd. Super cool moment. And then, yeah, live's just electric. Mike just absolutely goes off on a live. And John says Stone and Jeff are next to each other jamming, which we're used to seeing. Mike's tearing the house down and Eddie's having a great time. So, yeah, I mean, I, I love this version of Alive too. Like, really powerful. You can tell there's a lot of energy on stage. Very bubbly, happy kind of solo here. And I think that all kind of comes from some of the wah pedal that Mike is using. But what do I know? That's not my place here. Let's pass it over to Javier to really dig into that because he knows these things. He probably knows it better than I will. So let's listen to him instead. This is a really cool version. There's so many things involved in this. One, in the way that the bootleg was recorded, like sometimes when that microphone will be moving in the way that the amps are gonna be pushing air out, sometimes you're gonna have that kind of like bubbly, I don't know, like upbeat sound that you will hear out from the amps. But if we will have like an original recording or like an official bootleg coming from this year, there's so many different elements being used right now. There's a very subtle univibe in the back. He's definitely using a strat. You can hear like tremolo arm being used at some point. When I was trying to go back and look for like any sort of YouTube recording around this year, it's amazing how much time Mike was spending like right next to his board for like solos like this. It's just consistently trying to look for different combinations, right? Because we got to remember that there was no overdrive pedal for the tour this year. So it's kind of like you're more limited, quote unquote, related with what you can get out of your amps, which shows like a really good proof of craftsmanship related to what Mike can do only with a pan volume pedal and just very loud amps. You can get so many different combinations related to this and he's consistently playing around with it, creating distance with the amp, playing with the volume pedal, playing with maybe like the volume and the tone knobs related with the strap that he was using for this version. This is what we like him so much. This is why we always have so much respect for him and he has gotten better with age too like i wonder what he can do right now with just that kind of setting that will be very very interesting to hear but yeah it was a different approach it was less pedal focus and more here are three basic elements show me what you can do kind of thing and he delivers he definitely does i know that a couple episodes ago we talked about like your tone pickup position and what you can do with a guitar and right now he's just like changing in the way that he attacks the string and the way that he's handling that volume pedal to get a little bit more overdrive, maybe less overdrive. But yeah, it does show how much you can do with those elements and it really shows like how capable he is and how good he is, especially with the elements that he was using around that time. All right. Wonderful stuff. Thank you so much. And we'll see you back for actually no way. Okay, time to pause for station identification. We're here at the Encore. 
Let's get to these things. Patreon first. Let's thank David Kolotinsky for joining up on the bonus leg. Thank you so much, David. And he did the free trial before joining. So that is always available for you guys. If you just don't know what the content's going to be, you don't know if you're going to enjoy it or not. It is a seven day free trial. You can sign up for it on the bonus leg tier. So when that trial is over, it'll only charge your card $1. And if you decide after that, that that was enough, that you listen to everything, then you're good. Then you can cancel it from there. But everybody that has used the free trial so far has stayed as a patron at this point. So just very thankful for that. And honestly, you could do that too, because coming up, very, very shortly is the live reaction episodes. That is the big thing about Patreon that we're just going to keep pushing in the next couple weeks right from site. When we go to St. Paul, John and I aren't going to St. Paul. We're going to be sitting at our desk following the show. But when the time comes after the show, we're going to talk to our good friend Kirk, who's going to bring everyone together to talk about what they just witnessed and their favorite moments and the atmosphere there. And we'll do that for every single show. Obviously, I will be on hand for the Chicago versions and the Fort Worth versions. And it will be the best content that we'll do all year because it's reacting to exactly what everybody wants to know. And that's just going to continue on. And for nine shows, we're going to do that. So if you want to join on Patreon, let's plug that. It's patreon.com slash live on four legs or go to the Patreon app and search for live on four legs or go to live on four legs.com and click the become a patron button. I will say that we did put out two new episodes recently. There is the horizon profile episode for Alex sink who joined us last week. It was a terrific guest. Also, there's a brand new episode of the hallucinogenic recipe podcast. And that is about the November 1995 run, the two shows in Salt Lake City, the San Jose show, and then the two that ended the little run in San Diego. They're going to talk about collecting that, and they're going to talk about some of the big moments that happened and some of the memorable stuff that happens from that show. So the hallucinogenic recipe stuff, it is pure gold. It's stuff that you won't want to miss. That first look will be on Patreon right now as we're talking here. A couple other things to talk about tonight. If you are listening to this on the 23rd, then you need to clear your plans for tonight because we are holding our five-year anniversary party over Zoom here. And we just kind of want to get everybody together and really from our standpoints, get to thank all of you in one spot and kind of get to talk to you guys about how your fandom how it's evolved over time. And I know for a lot of people that were listening during 2020, the, the pandemic and all that, we kind of helped some people through that. So we want to hear your stories about that. We want to hear some of your stories or your favorite moments of the show and just kind of celebrate with us because it is a thing worth celebrating. Got to be proud of yourself for accomplishing stuff. And I feel like we have so much that we have accomplished that we can't not do something very cool. And also, if you're there and you hang with us and talk to us, you'll probably be a part of the anniversary episode, too. So keep that in mind. You excited for this? We got only got a couple hours left before we get to this point. Yeah, it's going to be great. I'm excited to hear people's stories and see what they have to say. As always, yeah. 
So we'll do that and we'll talk about some other things there as well, as we usually do. Sometimes these things like the Christmas party, they just kind of become like a telethon for Pearl Jam happenings in the community where somebody's like, oh, I got, I got something, a raffle going on. I got this going on. So we just try to give everybody a chance to promote their stuff. And yeah, that's kind of what should go on. Everybody should get a chance if they're working on something creative that they should get a chance to to promote and all that. So we'll do a lot of that. We'll just kind of play it by ear too and we'll bullshit as much as we can. And I did mention raffle. The raffle that will be taking place at karaoke in Chicago on the 6th is still up on liveonfourlegs.com. It's right at the top on the first slider. So if you click on that, you can purchase either $5 raffle tickets or $10 or $20. $20 will get you 10 tickets, and you'll be able to get in to win three awesome prizes that you'll be able to see if you go to the site right now. So we're hoping that we can hit around like... $2,500 in raffle money to donate to Cystic Fibrosis Foundation. We're kind of right under a thousand, so it feels like we need to really make a push to the end here, but that's where you guys come in. If you want to help donate, then just head to the website right there. You can pay for it right there. Easy as pie, but we will be promoting that at our anniversary party tonight. The last thing to promote is once again, Jamduel. If you have a livefootsteps.org account, then sign in. You will see an option to join Jamduel. And what it is, is it's not quite what people would notice fantasy sports to be, which we did the last couple of years. What it is, is actually more of the fan duel and the DraftKings sort of style, where you're picking 10 songs and you're picking from all different categories of rarities and commons and covers and all that. And you're being pit up against the whole entire league. So everybody is going up against one another. And the whole idea is to be the last one standing, to have the most points. And there's some cool caveats that are thrown in. So if you want to join that, livefootsteps.org, head over there right now. Make sure if you don't have an account that you create an account because it's a pretty cool place. You can actually put in all of your shows and see all of the stats that you have collected throughout all the years, which could be very fun. I like that stuff. John likes that stuff. So if you want to sign up, it's over there. Follow the directions and that will get you into the game. All right, guys, back to the rock. During the break, it feels like we get a lot of football fans out there. And this being on August the 25th, football is probably about a week away. So here we go, Steelers, here we go. And in Pittsburgh, it doesn't matter what month it is. It could be March. It could be December. They will chant for the Steelers wherever it doesn't matter so of course this is gonna happen but Ed is kind of fiddling around with a shirt on stage he flips it around on one side it says no and on the back it says way and his answer to that is no way but then again kind of thinks all right well we could try it did we try it it would be the first time probably 
And it seems like he kind of tests the idea with the rest of the band and crowd a little bit. And it does feel like the band seems to agree. And when Ed is kind of making small talk with the crowd here, you can hear Jeff sort of like noodling in the background and kind of figuring out, okay, like where's the changes and all that. So they're setting up. They're being prepared. I think they, at least in a couple of these shows, sound checked it. So maybe that's all they really need to go off here. And the small talk is not much. It's Ed asking about the rain and acknowledging somebody without a shirt in the back. And yeah, yeah. so it's that kind of stuff. Piercings so, or something. Yeah. Yeah. And then shouting out George, who I believe got a shout out at the 2000 Pittsburgh show too. George just Will. being, yep. Being very, very excited that they're doing a hometown show for him. So, all right. The band's going to give this a go. thought is don't keep the expectations up too high because yes this is the first time clearly because they waited until the middle of the second leg just to try it they're not gonna be terribly comfortable with it so look at worst it's choppy in spots and especially the beginning takes a little while to kind of figure out a rhythm and kind of get into that but at best it does feel like they put a lot of effort into it. Mike is getting a little bit experimental with some of the noises that's happening and some of the gaps that he's filling with some of those sounds are pretty cool that I didn't really expect this song to have. And the bridge sounds really tense and has character to it. And, you know, sometimes when these songs are played on the fly, it's kind of like, hey, let's get through it and not see this through and work on it. But... It felt like once they really got moving, the wheels really got in motion, they kind of got it together and it didn't sound half bad. Yeah, I was pleasantly surprised. I was with you. I had lower expectations for this, to put it one way. Like, they brought it back a week later. I got to see it in Atlanta. And I remember that version being pretty solid. Like, they had definitely worked it out. But this one, yeah, at first you're like, oh, okay, this is going to be a train wreck. But evidently, again, I'll go back to our buddy John. He lets us know that Matt was watching Stone the whole time for the rhythm. So Matt obviously not 100% comfortable playing it yet. So that's going to affect everything. It's going to give the whole thing more of a tentative feel to it. But about halfway through, they got to where like, okay, we can do this. And started to see Mike doing some little things and throwing some things in. And yeah, I thought it was pretty good for a debut. I liked it. Now, I wanted to get Javier's take on this because clearly... 
It's only been played 12 times. We talked about it before. It has been nine years since they brought it back out. And I want to get Javier's side of the equation as to why is this a no? Why is this something that the band can't put together? Is it something rhythmically that is complicated about the song? Is it because it gets too monotonous in through the verse into the chorus a little bit and there are not a lot of different changes? I want to hear from Javier what he's going to say about this because I find it very, very interesting, and maybe it'll kind of clue us into some of the actual reasons that this was left on the shelf a lot. So let's hear from him. A couple of weeks ago, actually, we were talking about this. I think it was over Facebook with Dakota from the Pearl Jam podcast community. And well, this one goes for you, buddy, because I know that you were very interested about the approach of No Way. I don't think there is a complexity when it comes to play this song because the tuning is very simple, guitars are in drop D. Stone is the main character on the story when you're playing this song. He's just doing the rhythm part, right? It's very straightforward. Now the original recording, for what I can hear, it was recorded with a wah pedal and when you put your wah pedal kind of like in between, not very high, not very low, you can get like kind of like honky nosy tone that you known the song for. And I think a low watt amp was used to this. Like there's no other combination that I can think of that you're gonna get this. I think the complexity relies because this song, if you hear it with headphones and especially the new Atmos mix that it was released last year, it has so many little details in the back. I think that could be achieved in a session studio set, but I don't think that can be achieved live. And maybe that's why they don't play it that often. That's my theory. I might be wrong. I don't know. But if you really want to kind of respect the song in the way that it is coming from the studio setting, because it's like a 3D recording kind of thing, I think you will need like maybe different elements. And I know for a fact that these guys, they don't run a stereo on their pedal boards. So that's where the complexity relies. I think... The take of the song over the studio setting is so unique and that's what everybody likes this song for that I guess they're maybe more reluctant to play this version live because they cannot achieve what they achieved over the studio session. But that's my take. That's my theory. Every single version that I've heard, I always feel that there's something missing rhythm-wise. I don't think it's a huge problem for them, but just achieving all those sounds and the in and out that Jeff has over his bass take, it's weird. He goes in, he gets out of the song. Mike is always doing like little licks and arpeggios in the back, but those cannot be achieved if you're not running stereo delay effects over a live setting. That's what I think it is. Maybe somebody else has a different take, a different idea or a different theory. Share it with us because I've always been intrigued about how this song can be played right live. Great way to close this one on out. Thank you so much to Javier. Doing a wonderful job. I did want to add that evidently the person with the t-shirt got the t-shirt back. So hopefully they still have that hanging on a wall somewhere. If it's you, then give us a call. Give us an email. We'd always love to hear from those kind of people. Let's dig into the next part of the encore. It is going to be a three-headed monster of energy songs here. 
Animal, Hail Hail, and Not For You. Not For You for me is the highlight. What for you feels like the highlight? To me, it's Hail Hail. It's lightning fast. We waited this long to get a no-code song. It's the only one of the night. There's a moment. There might be, if we can maybe call this a filthy fill. You got Cameron on the toms at the end. Just sounds phenomenal. Yeah, I don't think it was a fill, but it's a good map moment. Yeah. It kind of like almost spins the song on top of its head a little bit. It's out of character for what the song is. Yeah, hell, hell, like freight train speed and sweat inducing. Like, that's a really, really good moment. But the exact opposite, believe it or not, is actually not for you. Ed's going to say in the beginning, Jeff says, there's no mistake, this one is not for you. And weirdly, it feels like you kind of build up to like the biggest moment. But the juxtaposition between animal, hell, hell, and not for you is that. Not For You actually kind of takes it down a little bit of a notch and sort of uses tempo and finds the groove within the tempo and then builds to the big moments instead of just coming out and knocking a home run like they did in 1994, 1995 with this. It just mowed through in those eras. But this is a lot more deliberate, more open, and allows for those builds to kind of raise the excitement level and all those key spots and moments just hit so well in this version and a lot of it is stone doing the groove and then stone soloing and everybody's in on it i thought this was very good yeah that's what i was going to mention is yeah this is an all stone version that has his fingerprints all over and then you get the og ending on this too with the little finger picking at the end which is always good to get all right, Nothing Man and Black. So it's a pretty impassioned version of Nothing Man. It just feels like the chords are just ringing out and like they're traveling across Western PA. The small build into the bridge is actually really elevated. That little part, and it's not a Cameron fill, but he definitely brings an extra pop to it right before the Into the Sun. It's a really nice performance of this. Black, however, is the highlight. Oh, yeah. Black is absolutely incredible. Again, another we've been on a really, really good run of Blacks here. That When it gets to Mike's solo, he just tears the roof off it. I mean, going back to John, says he's seeing McCready's over in front of his amp on the edge of the stage with his eyes closed, head back, just wailing. Like, that's quintessential Black solo for Mike. That's what you want to hear. This is unbelievable.
Yeah, and the song is actually a dedication to somebody that he met just hanging out earlier named Scott. I give the crowd a lot of credit for this version because just like we kind of mentioned in Barry, how Black was sort of the moment where the people around the microphone just sort of stopped talking, this forces you to pay attention and forces you into the performance and there's just no way out of that. They're singing the majority of this and it really kind of shows when you hear that first tattooed everything like you hear them all in unison do that and it just keeps building up and building up and a lot of Ed's vulnerability on display in this version I think that kind of helps lead to Mike sort of translating how Ed is feeling with the song and bringing it to what he does with his guitar. I thought that a lot of that meshed together really, really well, and it generated a lot of power and felt like a really, really massive moment for this night. Yeah, I think this version is about seven minutes. It could have easily been nine or ten. I think I wanted this to go on forever. All right, rocking in the free world into Yell Ledbetter, the bread and butter we're not going to kind of talk about how the Alive situation worked this week because this is a little more what we're used to here. But Ed just seems like he's just looking for this big spark on rocking, and he belts out a let's go somewhere in between the verses. And I don't know if you noticed this, but he's doing kind of like his best Neil Young impersonation on this too to sort of match like the enunciations that Neil does. No, that's interesting. Yeah, doing a little homage there. Yeah, kind of like letting his voice flutter a little bit. Like, there's a one side, like kind of that typical Neil sound. But it just feels really fired up. They know that it's one more and done and then say goodbye to Pittsburgh. And another pandering Pittsburgh moment doing the thousand points of light for the Pittsburgh man. But inspired. It feels like we haven't heard a real lot of completely inspired versions of Rockin' in the Free World in a long time. You think party moment and they're just going to have fun with it and everybody knows it's celebratory, but this is like, all right, one more kick in the ass. We're not going to party. We're going to kick you in the ass one more time before we're out of here. Yeah, just on top of their game, especially coming off of something like Black where just feel that energy on stage. They're just going to use that and send it right back into the crowd with Rock and the Free World. There is 100% of Filthy Phil here just after three minutes, I think. Cameron does a thing, I'm listening to this, and it's just, oh my god, it just makes you stand on the edge of your chair. It's just unbelievable Cameron Phil. Again, we didn't have a whole lot of them at this show, and I think it's just two totally different shows here because you gotta think in Barry this is a fired up crowd that it's all GA it's 30,000 plus of them and I wonder if just seeing that kind of allowed for everybody to pick up their game and Matt especially had such an amazing show because he was kind of working off of what the crowd was going with and wanted to play more intense and add a little bit extra in because that big crowd is looming over there but i don't know if that's like a perfect scientific reason as to why there were more but i i think that kind of goes hand in hand there 
And the song choices too. I think there were more, you had things like Dissident, In Hiding, Better Man. We talked about Better Man especially, that's like right up his alley, things that he can go off on right away that more tailored to his style. This set list is a little weirder than that one, I think. Yeah, I can see that. We're going to end this, obviously, with Better, And just like last week, it does feel like it's another put-together version of Better. that it's not just kind of a throwaway that we get now. And that's making me respect the song so much more than I used to. And it's not that I didn't respect it. It's just kind of like is what it is when you get into the latter era, which is terrific. But there's not much more to say except for everybody's having a good time. However, I kind of noticed this on Leadbetter. It has some big surges on it where maybe you just don't notice that they are on this song sometimes. Like getting right into the chorus, they built that up pretty big before rising to that moment. I thought that that was tremendous on this. Again, I don't think it's anything that I kind of ever gave weight to, but it's important here. not usually an adjective we talk about with Pearl Jam's usually used to talk about like baseball cards from the 20s and 30s or something the pre-war era but oh I thought you meant another baseball thing oh no the pre-war era yellow lead better is interesting because it did have a really good build with a really like organic growth from the crowd the crowd just loves the song when you get to you know 2003 then the song changes and kind of becomes something else from there on out but these early versions, like the 96, 98, 2000 versions of Yellow Light Better are really cool because you can tell it's something that the band is just giving to the crowd as a gift. Like, here's this B-side that people just latched onto. It became this closing anthem, and you can tell that, that everyone in the crowd loves it. Then we finish again on some really kind of spacey and funky kind of mic stuff. A lot of effects, yeah. yeah. Very heavy on the rotosphere for this to end it wonderful job wonderful show but it's not really over you see during Leadbetter, there's some aftermath here somebody is recording up in front and ed takes notice to this and goes up to the guy recording and he asks him hey can you say something and ed walks directly into the microphone and says hi this is eddie vetter and this is the end of the show it sounded like he said he was rump roast, but I feel like it was something else. Yeah, something else. Okay. It was, it, was it rump roast? I hope it turned out good. And then he's about to tell a joke about a snail, but says, you know what? Mike's finishing up here. There's no time for a joke. So whoever hears this, have a good life. I'm trying to. So it's cool to hear his voice. And that recording is actually not the same recording as the full boot that we listened to. That's sort of an extra thing that had been passed around, but very cool that they attached it onto that. That was a nice little Easter egg, I suppose, to finish the show out. 
it's classic Ed talking what we've heard in interviews from the early 90s and everything. He's oh yeah, you know, have a good life. I'm trying, you know, his classic thing. But yeah, this is the thing that has always kind of stuck out to me from this show. This was an MP3 on Five Horizons back when MP3s were kind of brand new and you could go download everything and I'll burn it all into a CD and listen to it. Yeah, this is super cool. I think this is the only one that we have of these. And this, I know he's done this before at more than one show, but I think this is the only one that we have. So yeah, I love this little insight into something that was only obviously meant for one person, but I think it's super cool. And yeah, you get to hear Ed in the talk in the middle of Mike Solo and Solo Tape Recorder. And really, really great that we get to hear this. Thanks to whoever shared it. He's the only front man on earth that would actually be genuine in that situation instead of being like you guys enjoyed the show like think about if paul stanley did that you know yeah or even like just be a mess or even like how many people would just be dicks about it and just be like no get something out of here make make a make a dumb joke or do something stupid but like no he's really genuine and yeah you can tell like i mean obviously we're gonna play it but yeah i love this it's gonna be hard to pick i mean i don't know if it counts as a moment in the show but this is the thing that i think of when i think of the show it's sort of whatever you want it to be and i guess that's what we'll get into right now a tough time picking the three because i can go in a lot of different directions here but i'm going to say my number three is do the evolution my number two is black And then I have a lot of songs that could have easily been number three, number two. I got shit, Brain of J, Not For You could be up there, Rockin' In The Free World is very, very good. But my number one out of all this is Rearview Mirror and the little improv that Ed does in Rearview Mirror. I just thought was a key moment for this show that made it stand out. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this is tough because I've got really four songs that I could choose, and then obviously the tape recorder moment I'm going to set aside as a separate thing. My number three is going to be No Way. My number two is going to be Brain of J. And my number one is Black. All right. Well, we mixed it up a little bit there, and now we get to put a number on this rating it. Ah, I like the show. I thought that this was very good. You know what the identity of the show is right from the start, and it doesn't really let up from that the whole entire way. You're going to get that kind of ed, and I really appreciate that because there are some shows, and like there are even some 1995 shows out there where they start off like that, and then the second half of the set, Ed kind of has to retreat from that because he's either short-winded or can't do that for a whole two and a half hours. So I'm within the nine realm. I'm like maybe not at a nine and a half, but I'm definitely at a nine. I think it is a very, very good nine show. I'm going to go nine and a half. Same as last week. I really, really enjoyed this. I think it's fantastic. I'd recommend this to just put on and listen to all the way through. A lot of really good moments, some special stuff. The tape recorder thing at the end again, I'll go back to that. It bumps it up to me. Yeah, solid nine and a half on this one. Very good. One of the most iconic posters to me. This is one of my favorite posters okay. of all time. The green guy with the cigarette and the pirate's hat on. I thought that was just very Pittsburgh to me. So I enjoyed that. A lot of phenomenal posters from 1998. You, that... you like the baseball references? Sometimes. 
sometimes. I don't like when there's a bird head on a real player's body, and because they are in St. Louis, they have to do a Cardinals thing, because they always do. That I don't like. But this, it's just the baseball hat that makes it baseball. That's it. All right. Well, we're back on the 1998 train next week. And then right after the episode airs, we are at shows. And it's going to be all about the shows. And next week, we're going to be doing Birmingham, Alabama. It's one of our good friend Patrick Bogle's favorite shows. And I think maybe we'll be able to hear from him. So get excited for that. And then after that will be the anniversary episode because we just kind of need a week to get something a little bit easier in that's not going to take a lot of time since we got a lot of preparation for Chicago and even for Fort Worth, Dallas coming up. So that's the plan. And I hope you guys are all in on that because we're excited to give it to you, but way, way, way more excited to see what the hell this band is going to do when they step on that stage in St. Paul on the 31st. So we'll get to push more of the excitement next week, and you'll see it all over social media too. But until then, remember, if you're listening to this and you aren't subscribed on your favorite podcast platform, head on over. The two big ones being Apple and Spotify. You can head over there, subscribe. You can rate the show. As every week, we feel like we deserve the five stars. So if you feel the same, please feel free to rate us that way. And it will definitely help our visibilities within those platforms. But also, if you're on Apple and you want to leave us a comment, that would be really, really helpful too. Just to us, like we don't need to know, we'd love to know what you think about the show, but I think it's more so for the next person that wants to find a Pearl Jam podcast to listen to, that wants good content, that wants to relive some of their favorite memories that maybe they never heard of the show before, but we have almost 250 episodes to this point. We had to probably have covered something that somebody's gone to if they've gone to multiple shows by this point. So Hopefully that everybody gets something out of that and that's just kind of keeping the train of moving. Word of mouth is the best thing possible and we're going to get the opportunity to really push the word of mouth in about a week from now once everything goes out on tour. So, all right, let's close it out. This may be the end. We're here and not for much longer. And although we may be parting ways, miss you already, miss you always. Birmingham, Alabama next week, followed by some more important stuff. We'll get to all of it. We won't go away. We promise. Actually, it'll be the opposite. You won't be able to get rid of us. See you next week. No way. Hi, this is uh, Eddie Vedder. This is the end of this show. And uh, he was from Gross Open to Trying.